The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday's episode of Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I am your host, Dan Bespris. I forgot on yesterday's podcast to list what pod number we are into the offseason. Yesterday was number 17. This is podcast week four of our offseason adventure. So uh, welcome into show 18 of the offseason. As you guys know, we go Monday through Friday year-round, whether or not there are box scores to break down or not. And right now we are about ankle-deep in the Yahoo end-of-season rank comparison, so we'll be continuing through that today. We'll also break down the playoff results and a quick preview on the games coming up this evening, although I'll admit, generally, we go in the opposite order to what I just talked about. And I'll let you guys know, you can follow me on Twitter at Dan Bespris. If any of you diehards here in the offseason that continue to listen to the show have a moment to drop a five-star review on the pod, I would be forever grateful for that. And certainly, if you're considering jumping in on the betting side, because today's a good day for me to talk about it. Yesterday, I uh, predicted the... Uh, Philly, and we talk about Philly and the under on yesterday's show. I thought Utah. Eh. <laughs> um, my curiosity on that second game was on the under, whether or not teams would have enough fuel in the tank. And in any event, uh, so yeah, it's as good a time as any. Brew has been very good. Blake and Devin, those guys are breaking down the MLB card. And then a shout out to our buddy Troy Markowski who got off to a little bit of a slow start in the postseason, but has really turned things around. He is, uh, I think he's Dwayne The Rock J on Twitter. Um, so we, I guess we don't need to get through the spelling on that one, but Troy has rebounded really nicely in his playoffs. Um, I believe he's won five or six in a row with one play a day, basically. So he's won every single day for like the last week, pretty much. And that's pretty sweet. So a very good reason to jump on our hoop ball wager pass for 33 cents a day. You get all of that stuff all rolled into one thread. You also get Discord access. And shout out to one of our newer fantasy contributors, the great Rhett Bauer, for putting out some Dynasty content for the Fantasy Pass subscribers this week. So that's a very cool addition here during the offseason, the uh, Dynasty season wrap which is great stuff, and it's a, it's a really well-put-together article. They're gonna be, there's going to be more on the Dynasty side. Just another good reason to let that Fantasy Pass subscription keep going here in the offseason because while redraft leagues are over, Fantasy season most certainly continues. Let's talk a little bit about the playoffs. I want to talk about the Philly-Atlanta game to start things off, and we all looked at this and said, okay, what did Philly figure out? in the second half of game one, and do the Hawks have a viable counter? And the thing we talked about on yesterday's podcast that I, I, I believe still resonates pretty strongly is that, well, for one, Philly was very bad at the free throw line again, and, and they, they're, they're not one of the better free throw shooting teams thanks to having Dwight Howard and Ben Simmons on the same, same club, but Joel Embiid could have been better. He took a lot, but he could have been better. 
And the turnovers were very good, which that was an issue for the Hawks in the first game. Philly is a good defensive team when they want to be. And I think they realized in game one, they got pushed a little bit in a way that Washington beat them in a game where Joel left and they were already up a bunch of games in that series. This was game one. Atlanta came in, kind of knocked them in the mouth for a half. And then Philly came back. And our discussion points on yesterday's show, just to very quickly go back to them, were that, look, the main, the anchor, the defensive wizard on the Atlanta side, the guy that brings it all together is Clint Capella. He had five fouls in 27 minutes against Joel Embiid. John Collins fouled out. That is the magic of Joel Embiid. By the way, congratulations to Nikola Jokic on winning the regular season MVP award. Well-deserved and no one was close. So all that bluster from the media trying to get Embiid the MVP or Steph. I love Steph. You guys know I love Steph. The MVP was Nikola Jokic. He played all 72 damn games for his team. That's, that's a thing. That's freaking important. And he did it even after their other superstar went down with injury. And Steph, I get it, didn't have a whole lot of help. But look, it's about good numbers, great numbers, and durability. That's part of it. No one was close to Jokic. I use this as a preface to say Joel Embiid is a tougher cover. Not because he's better at any one thing, because their numbers on the year, Jokic were better, like significantly so. And certainly Joel Embiid a better rim protector than Jokic on the defensive side, but Nikola's gotten a little bit better on that end of the floor. But I'm talking about game impact, strategy impact. With Nikola Jokic... You have to guard everything, including him, but you're probably not going to be in foul trouble because he's going to do little weird fadeaways. He's going to get great looks. He's going to bury you on threes. He's going to go up and under. He's going to spin around you. He's going to make everything, but you're probably not going to foul him because he's too damn clever. Jokic is too damn clever. Joel Embiid is too fast at his size. And that's why these big men are constantly in foul trouble. He's just quicker. He does it to everyone. It's why he, I believe he led the league in free throws attempted this season. Did he beat Giannis on that? Giannis might have passed him just because of games played. But certainly on a per-game basis, Joel was number one. It's always a James Harden award. And Harden wasn't close with his new surroundings. Joel Embiid averaged 10.5 free throws a game during the regular season. And that's the thing. If your team needs the big man to be the defensive anchor, you're in real trouble. This is a bad matchup for Atlanta after the Knicks were relatively a good matchup because they had no one to put pressure on Clint Capella and the Hawks' interior defense. And the Sixers have the best one at doing it in the whole league. So Philly wins by 16. Uh, they won the turnover battle. They lost the rebounding battle. That'll be something I'm sure that Philly looks at between ball games, just to say, look, like this is something we should win when the other guys shoot much worse than we do. There should be defensive rebounds for the grabbing, which also brings it to the point. You say, well, hey, maybe the, the Hawks take better care of the ball. Uh, maybe they shoot better in the next one. But the rebounding, to me, is probably the thing that evens out. So whatever you think the Hawks might do better, that's something that, that Philly can do better. I think this series probably pivots here. Atlanta did show themselves to be better at home in that first playoff set, although they, they did win two out of their three games in New York. 
But I think Philly's got this one in control, and that's why we talked about taking Philly on the series price prior to this game two. The other game last night was a bit of a barn burner. I don't... At the beginning of the podcast, it's just something like, well, Utah. Um, I felt like this was a game Utah needed to win really by a bunch. Now, kudos, because Oddsmakers got this one right on the nose. Utah was a four-point favorite at opener. When Mike Conley got ruled out, that dropped down to three, and that's exactly what they won by. Although, admittedly, they were up by, what was it, 10 with, like, two minutes to go? And then they just ran nothing on offense from that point. I think they got, like, one Donovan Mitchell fadeaway jumper and some free throws. Total finished at 221, which is also right on the number. Utah historically missed over 20 shots in a row in the opening frame, did not find themselves down all that much. Donovan Mitchell went bananas, and they came back and took what was at one point, I believe, uh, they were up by 10. Were they up by more than 10? I don't remember. It was close. It was somewhere around that that marker. But this was the, this was supposed to be, and not that there's ever going to be an easy one, but this was supposed to be the easier one for the Jazz because they were rested They dispatched Memphis in five games. They were able to wait on the Clippers and the Mavs. And everybody's like, oh, what about the rust factor? Yeah, I mean, five, six days off, that's not very much. That's not that much rust. They could practice that whole time. You can't simulate the playoff game, but they just got through a couple with Memphis, and they knew the competition level was going to be higher. So, yeah, there was a lot of rust there, but I think it was more nerves than rust sort of a new stage for a lot of these guys. You could see that a lot of them were kind of overwhelmed by the bigger stage. The weird one, I thought Joe Ingles would have a better ball game against uh, Paul George of <laughs> all players. The, so my takeaway from this, and on yesterday's podcast, I mentioned I thought the Jazz were going to win this ball game, and they did, but ended right on the number. I didn't really have a good feel for the total. I thought Utah would score a bunch. My, my question was whether or not the Clippers had the energy to keep up. And then as it turned out, the, uh, the ball game just wasn't played very well from an offensive standpoint. This wasn't pace-wise. Utah, I mean, they did, they did enough, but both teams almost ended like right on the marker, which is surprising considering they shot 42 and 41% respectively. But the two teams combined for 33 three-pointers, a lot of their shots were from downtown. Teams got to and made most of their free throws and only committed a combined 15 turnovers. And I think a lot of that, at least on the Clippers' side, was a fatigue element. For the Jazz, I really don't know. I thought the Jazz would force more turnovers than they did in this ballgame. I thought they would do better at not fouling, being the more rested team. So I look at this one and I think, boy, Utah, like this doesn't inspire confidence. I know they got the win and Rudy Gobert got the block at the end on Marcus Morris, who was just atrocious in this game. But who wasn't? Just Donovan Mitchell. He was really the only player in this game that I looked at and thought, that dude is having an impactful ball game. You could maybe also argue Luke Kennard had a good shooting game. He had 18 points on nine shots. That's good. And he got extra run because he was the only Clipper that could make a bucket, and probably because he was one of the only Clippers with fresh legs. Paul George legs were like jelly in this game 20 points on 17 shots and only because he got 10 free throws so i look at the next one i think okay we could probably get to around 50 combined free throws again maybe a couple less than that but pretty close i think you probably see a few more turnovers whatever that means from a pace standpoint you probably get a couple extra shots 
if the game is going back and forth a little bit more, more half-court than anything. And I think you'll see a ton of three-pointers again. So if those fall at all, the next game of this series, I think, has a pretty good chance to trickle over the number. Nobody was really that proficient on offense, aside from Donovan Mitchell. If he slows down, fine. It's really not the end of the world. Other guys will be expected to do stuff. I'd be even more confident if they got Mike Conley out there, and we don't know what his status is for Game 2, but I would assume questionable at the very best. And you probably see Reggie Jackson deal with less foul trouble in the next one. That's another positive notch for the Clippers offensively. There are a lot of things in Game 2 pointing to better offense. There really isn't a whole lot that these teams, can, these teams can do to fully contain one another. The Jazz rely on Rudy Gobert to clean up anything near the rim. The Clippers are not a monster rim-attacking team on the whole. They're going to probably play a lot of iso ball with Kawhi and PG, and then maybe you get a little bit more Reggie Jackson in Game 2. And it'll kind of come down to how fast the two teams get into their offense. But if this game was any indicator and there's any positive offense, that next game should go over. In terms of the number, Utah's favored by three again. I might be inclined to take the Clippers on the money line in game two. And I know that's a little bit of a public side, but they should have, Clippers probably should have won this game. Not that they, I mean, just from a, you had an opportunity you didn't think you were going to have standpoint, but I thought the Clippers were going to lose this one, uh, I don't say going away, because neither one of these teams is that bad or that good to pull away from the other. The gap isn't there. But I, I didn't think the Clippers were going to get out to that quick lead. I didn't think they were going to be able to come back late when they fell behind. And yet, there they are, fighting away. I think they feel good after that first-round win. That was a pretty good test for L.A., and they, kind of, and they overcame it. But this one was always going to be a rough, rough one for the Clips. Seven-game series and then into altitude with no time to game plan. Denver-Phoenix is the only game happening tonight. It's a one-gamer here, and we've actually talked about this one already, but we'll do a 45-second review of, of what we mentioned on yesterday's podcast, which is I think Denver plays this one tighter. And they were close for a while. I talked about this on a numbers game with my buddy Gil Alexander. He was kind enough to have me back on VEASAN uh, Tuesday morning. I said, he, he said, look, Denver was right there. They hung with them, and then there was a stretch where Philly just, or excuse me, Phoenix just took over. And I said, yeah, you're 100% right. However, that's the type of thing that happens when one team is just better than the other. Basketball is kind of a game of, it generally is considered a game of runs. But usually, it, it's not like one team goes on an eight-point run and then the other team goes on a six-point run, and that happens five or six times in a ball game. That's how a zero-point lead magically becomes six or seven. In fact, it's usually like, one team has a 12-0 run, and the other team doesn't really respond. They get like four points, and then the teams go back to trading buckets. It doesn't usually just slowly grow. You can look at most box scores and just look at the quarter-by-quarter quarter breakdown. The team that wins doesn't always win each quarter by three or four points. It's usually like they win one by 12, lose one by two, win by five. So, yeah, it bounces around a little bit, but usually there's one stretch or two if it's a really ugly game, where the team that wins beats the nuts off the other one. So that might happen again, is what I'm getting at. However, I do believe Nikola Jokic plays better. I know DeAndre Ayton 
has been pretty effective, at least as far as defensive players go. He's one of the more effective ones because he's pretty tall and he's also pretty strong. But ain't nobody slowing down Nikola Jokic. The only thing that can slow him down is when he misses a few shots, and perhaps that happens a couple of times. But I'd be willing to, to go out on a small limb. It's a narrow limb, but it's a limb. And say, I think Denver keeps this one tighter. If they fail to cover, it'll be late. And in terms of the total of 222, we talked about this on yesterday's show. Last one finished at 227, with Phoenix dramatically overperforming their number, and Denver being, frankly, quite close to theirs. But Denver did it with only six free throws. So I think they are better in this next one. I think Phoenix probably doesn't shoot the ball as well, so they likely come down a little bit. Question is, what balances? Does Denver score 10 more points and Phoenix scores 10 less? Does Denver score 8 more points and Phoenix scores 14 points less? How does this thing balance? I think the number's pretty damn close, actually. But that's the playoff stuff. And I've already told you about my bookie. Or wait, did I? I meant to. I might have forgotten. Before you join mybookie.ag, please do let me know. Preferably by Twitter, at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Just say, Dan, I want to join my bookie. And I can give you a prize. I can give you cash to start with. Yeah, I know. Seems dumb, doesn't it? Well, it's not. Because that is how much we want to get you guys involved with one of our wonderful partners that we've had now for about a year here at Hoopball. Pretty remarkable. Most... uh Corporate partnerships don't often last that long. We've had Manscaped around for a year. We've had MyBookie around for a year. It's MyBookie.ag if you want to browse, look around a little bit before you do anything. But don't open an account without talking to me first, okay? Promo code is HoopBall. If you go in and you make a name, don't make your deposit without talking to me first. There's a whole thing here, okay? MyBookie.ag, please send a note my way so I can make sure that you start with the prize. Simple. Diving back into the Yahoo ranks where we left off yesterday, we had gone through the top 10, and as we always do, get a little bit sidetracked. But what we're going to pick up from today is pick 11, and we'll do these again in chunks. As we work our way through, we'll look for trends, we'll compare it to previous seasons, and we'll make some decisions on what this means for how we draft going forward. The first thing I want to mention, before we even get into this year's 11 through 20 range is that two years ago the 11 through 20 range was terrible yahoo did a really bad job they missed by 17 slots on average this is again the absolute value so positive misses negative misses whatever it might have been this is on a per game basis as well victor oladipo was a disaster ben simmons was a disaster that year donovan mitchell was wildly overdrafted on a per game basis that year so there were a number of misses in the second round, and then the ones they got close to right were honest, were generally guys that were overperforming by a half to a full round of value. Paul George had a really good season. That was two years ago. That was an OKC. Kawhi was very good that year. Chris Paul was actually a negative that year. Remember, that was the Houston season. Kyrie overperformed the number on a per-game basis. Joel Embiid overperformed the number on a per-game basis. They, Drew Holiday was the only one they really got right, missed by one. And everything else was like between 6 and 45, basically. Well, then last year, and even when it happened, it was like, this feels, 
This feels like an anomaly because this was a year where a bunch of guys that seemed like pretty good locks, like Victor Oladipo had been a second-round pick the previous year, and then he fell off a cliff. Donovan Mitchell and Ben Simmons sort of didn't really belong where they were there. It's not entirely clear why that was happening, but Donovan Mitchell underperformed, I think, based on what folks were expecting. That was kind of a John Morant-like. Everybody was just like, oh, this is the time, and we're like, uh. Well, then the following year, last year, before COVID shut the thing down, second round was actually pretty good. Only missed by an average of 10 slots. That's actually kind of hard to do when now you have room to miss both positive and negative direction. Last year, Kyrie Irving, Jimmy Butler, Kawhi, Trey Young, Paul George, Russell Westbrook, these are actually all, even Rudy Gobert, these were all relatively close. Kemba Walker was kind of the only mess last year in the 11 through 20 range on Yahoo preseason ranks. Drew Holiday was a bit of a disappointment, but not a, a an earth-shattering level one, at least on a per-game status. And so you go into this season thinking, okay, well, you know, the second round is not that big of an issue. We have this thing locked in our brains from two, three years ago that the second round is just not good. It happened two years ago, or three years ago as well. Uh, yeah, they, oh, you know what? I don't have the data from three years ago. I have the data from four years ago. My, my first year, I think that was the first year I was doing stuff at hoop ball. Second round was a mess. Uh... Four years ago, 2016, 2017, it was just unmitigated disaster. Paul Millsap was a disaster in the second round. Hassan Whiteside, Al Horford, Victor Oladipo. These guys were all really bad, really bad in the 11 through 20 range. Trying to think of anybody else that was in that bucket. So we had this notion in our brains that somehow the second round was just a spot that websites couldn't get right. But last year taught us that the websites pretty much did. Now, there were a lot of picks in that second round that finished pretty close to where they were selected. As I just mentioned, Kyrie Irving, Jimmy Butler, Trey Young, Luka Doncic was actually a a really close one. And he was right on the money. He was preseason 20, and he finished 20 on a per-game basis. But then we had to make a decision after last year. Was last year the anomaly where they finally got him right? Or was it the previous couple of years where the second round was seemingly kind of difficult? I think you have to basically assume that these upper rounds are pretty close. And this year, and by totals, yeah, everything was a bit of a mess this season. But by totals and by averages, the second round was basically the best. And I keep saying second round. It's second chunk of 10. The second chunk of 10 was basically the best grouping that Yahoo had this year. There was that one little uh, pocket, whatever you want to call it, I mentioned on yesterday's show. It was kind of between like 16 and 25-ish, maybe one earlier, 15 and 24, something like that, which sort of extends, I guess, beyond our second grouping. But it does basically rattle off the rest of the second round before things got wildly out of hand. In any event, in any event, the second round is no longer the treacherous land that it was before. And I don't know that it ever was as treacherous as we made it out to be. 
There may have been a brief window there where it was a little bit tougher to figure out which guys actually belonged in the second round because a number of those guys were being drafted in the third round. But I think we've been able to more or less cover that element with the Dan Bespris old man squad or the Dan Bespris uh, old boring squad, the D-Bobs, if you want to call them that, which is... I mean, these are so easy to pick out. Nico Vucevic was such an easy one. Rudy Gobert was such an easy one. Guys that were just being drafted too late for no real reason at all. Chris Paul was an extraordinarily easy one. You can go through the list and you can find them pretty fast. Kyrie Irving was actually a pretty damn easy one, being drafted at 24, wherever the hell he was going. So Gobert, Vooch, Kyrie... Those guys that, those guys fell, Chris Paul, sorry, I didn't mean to throw him in out of the, the wash as well. Freddie Van Vliet, if you want to go even farther down the board. But assuming we, we don't worry about those guys for a minute and we just focus on the dudes in that 11 through 20 range, there were very few of them that you looked at and thought, this guy very clearly does not belong. And very few of them didn't really belong. LeBron James ended up as a third rounder being drafted in the second round on a per-game basis. Much worse than that by totals, but I'm looking at per-game right now. DeAndre Aiden was a fourth rounder being drafted in the second round on a per-game basis, but he played every damn game this year, so he actually finished by totals one slot from his ADP. He's one of those guys this year we were talking about on yesterday's show where if you actually logged 70 games this season... That was very much a 10th category in a way that it wasn't in previous years. DeAndre Ayton was a fourth, late fourth, I might even argue early fifth round player on a per game basis, which most seasons you'd have looked at that as a second round pick and thought, oh God, what a disaster. But he was so much more damn durable than the rest of the NBA that you looked at and you went, okay, sweet. Played 70 plus games. Hit value. More or less. And so this year, on a per-game basis, the second round finished just 9.6 slots away on average, which is pretty freaking good. The live running tally was negative 10.75, and the live uh, per 10 non-absolute value was negative 2.8, meaning that the positive and negative misses almost completely wiped each other out. And I mentioned on yesterday's show that you don't want to take that number because it can be somewhat misleading, but the combination of the running per 10 and the absolute value per 10, both of them being in single digits on picks 11 through 20, tells you the second round isn't dead at all. The second round was the best handicapping that the big box site did this year. Those names, by the way, which I have not so cleverly omitted so far in this podcast for reasons unknown, and we'll go through them here one by one, started with Jason Tatum at pick number 11. He felt like one of the safest early round turn type of picks you could make. Predominantly because we saw him play at a first round clip for the second half of last year. He's young. The Celtics didn't change much season over season in terms of who was going to be doing things, you know, other than to say, hey, these guys might be a little bit tired. 
And then not only did Tatum get COVID and somehow kind of power through that to the tune of top 16 per game and top eight by totals, he somehow did it while people thought he was having a bad season. Season wasn't bad for Tatum. We just set the expectations too damn high. I mean, he, he was he was actually quite good this year. I mentioned it on yesterday's podcast. He's almost definitely going to be a Dan Bespris target going into next season because I think he probably gets drafted near the turn again despite showing that he's actually extraordinarily durable. The fact that he had COVID and still played 64 out of 72 regular season games at the clip he did? Hell yeah! I'm all in on Jason Tatum if you have a late first-round pick next year. I don't know why I got into that so much, other than to say, like, that was actually a pretty damn accurate handicap job. LeBron James as uh, an early second batch. I can't say round, because I'm doing it 11 through 20. It's a 10-team league here on these analyses. Uh, which is confusing for my own brain and the way that I speak about things. But LeBron James was drafted around number 12, and he was one that we all looked at and we were like, nope. Nope. They traded for Dennis Schroeder. He had the extremely short offseason, and he was one of the most vocal NBA players about how short the offseason was, so you knew he wasn't happy about it. And you knew his body wasn't totally recovered. Dude is 36, man. I just turned 36 on Christmas, right? I think it was 35 at the start of the season. It doesn't really matter. Point is, by totals, he went way under, thanks to the uh, high ankle sprain, the Solomon Hill dive. By averages, it wasn't good, but it wasn't break your team bad. He finished at number 31 on a per-game basis uh, after being drafted near the turn. That hurts you, but if he had played most of the season, you'd have been able to live with it. Still, he, you knew he was too high based on the offseason. That was an easy one to just sort of discount Although I'll admit, he was getting drafted 8, 9, 10, 11 in most leagues that I was in. If he fell to the middle, late second round, I probably would have taken him at that point. Just because he's LeBron. You never expect him to miss six weeks. Kawhi Leonard, you knew he was too low, but relatively accurate. Kevin Durant, you knew he was going to be a first-round per-game guy. You just had no idea how many games he was going to play. I didn't have the stones to draft him anywhere. I feel good about not having those stones right now. But the handicap was right. The handicap was, here's his per-game number. You want to roll the dice, fella, gal, whatever? You want to roll the dice, guy? Joel Embiid, mid-second round. That's a good per-game basis with the expectation of some games missed, so that was a pretty good handicap. Bradley Beal, mid-second rounder. Bam Adebayo, mid-second rounder. Jimmy Butler, mid-second rounder. Like, all this stuff was pretty damn good. DeAndre Ayton was ranked too high, but he managed to hit his mark with the durability, so it wasn't that bad of a pick, although I think he'll probably go later next year, and for good reason. He was rolling at about a top 30-35 clip for the second half of this season, and if he does that over an entire year, he actually gets into the mid-second round instead of late second. And then Paul George, who uh, I was expecting big things from PG this year, and that was one of my big misses. I believe. Maybe my biggest miss this season was Paul George as a guy to target in the second round. He underperformed his per-game mark after getting off to that lava-hot start to the year. Remember, shooting like 51% for a couple of months? That was an easy sell high because you knew that wasn't going to stick. And then everything kind of came apart at the same time. He missed games, so he didn't hit his mark there. I thought this was going to be a prove-it year for him in the regular season, and it was just not at all that. 
But on a per-game basis, he only missed by five, or Yahoo only missed by five. The second-round misses were, in order, and I'll give you the positive or negative, negative meaning that uh, a guy finished on a per-game basis lower than where he was drafted. Jason Tatum, negative five. LeBron James, negative 19. Kawhi, eight. KD, seven. Embiid, seven. Beal, negative one. Just call that a hit. Adebayo, negative two. You can call that a hit. Jimmy Butler, plus positive 12. He had a great year. Despite missing some games, Jimmy had a great year. He was uh, number 12 per game, and he was number seven. Sorry, he was uh, number six per game, number 11 by totals. That's pretty damn good. DeAndre Ayton, negative 30. But again, by totals, he was a direct hit. And then Paul George, negative five. But the guys that actually really hurt you in this round, LeBron, KD, and then sort of Paul George, you probably could stomach that one a little bit better. But LeBron and KD, basically, were the guys that, that killed you in the second round. And second chunk, sorry. So only two out of the 10 guys between 11 and 20 were guys that were, that just didn't get it done. Which is pretty similar it's actually slightly worse than last year. Kemba was kind of the only one that was really bad last season. This, after there were three guys who were big negative misses two years back, Oladipo, Simmons, Donovan Mitchell. And we started to get it in our damn heads that the second round was cursed, but it's just not the case. If you dodge the guy coming off a freaking blown Achilles, and if you dodge the 36-year-old coming off an eight-day offseason, your, your second round was basically a 100% hit rate with simple handicaps. The first round was harder than the second round by a long shot. We didn't know where James Harden was going to be this year, so maybe you could have dodged that one. Luca was an easy dodge with the handicap. Anthony Davis was someone you had to take by the middle of the first round just because even with the, the short offseason, you figured if he's out there giving you 60 games... That's an easy hit. Cat, that's one you definitely have to take. Trey looked like he'd turned a corner, but then we didn't handicap the impact of guys like Bogdan Bogdanovich. Devin Booker was one we should have handicapped. That's one you should we should have known. But in terms of ones maybe you didn't we didn't fully expect Harden missing that many games, AD missing as many games as he did, although we should have handicapped part of it. Cat, we should have we didn't know Trey, we weren't really ready for. In the second round, two of the three guys we were right there ready for. So the second round was freaking easy this year. And Yahoo knew it. And they could have been even better if they didn't pre-rank KD so damn high expecting me to play what? I mean, there was no way he was playing in back-to-backs, and he played in the last one just because he missed so many other ball games. You knew they were going to kid-glove him this year. I thought a best-case scenario for Kevin Durant was missing 20 games. I thought 52 was the best that this year was going to go for KD. What was the final number on him? Like 30? 35. 52, I thought, was the best-case scenario. And I wasn't willing to spend a second-round pick on that. Although... As a point of reference, Kyrie played 54, and uh, that got him to uh, number six. <laughs> so if KD had gotten to 52 games, he probably would have been like around the turn. But that's so much risk. There was almost no way he was going above that mark. So that was an easy one to pull out of the mix.
Other interesting footnotes on this first 20 now are that the, not even the miss size now, the actual final rank of guys did uh, a downward-facing arc through these first 20 picks in that uh, we'll go on a per-game basis. After the first five, remember we've been doing this on a running per-five basis, after five, the average final marking was 16. It dipped ever so slightly down to eight after Damian Lillard, and then it moved up through Trey Young, Devin Booker, Tatum, LeBron, uh, and that was sort of where things maxed out. That the average final rank at that point over the last five, the running five, was 40. This is at pick 12. And then, through Kawhi, KD, Embiid, Beal, Adebayo, it came back down to 11. The average final rank on a per-game basis between picks 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, basically a six-pick window, was about 11. They finished 5, 7, 8, 17, 19, and 6. Don't let anybody tell you there aren't values out there. If you handicap it right, they're out there for the taking. On the total side, it was not quite so robust because uh, KD missed so many damn ball games. And on the total side, it actually shows that the first and second rounds were almost the exact same. I suppose the second round actually potentially being a tiny bit better than the first this year in spots. The uh, second round and the first round were were kind of a wash on the total side. You just you had to end up with dudes that played. You had to end up with dudes that played. My top three picks in a league where I just decimated everybody else were Nikola Jokic. That was a great one to start with. DeAndre Ayton and Chris Paul. And those guys played all but, I think, three games this regular season, if I'm getting that right. I think they missed three games out of 216. So by totals, this I mean, this is a really big deal and a point that needs to be made. Chris Paul was number five by totals, Jokic number one, DeAndre Ayton number 20. There were a couple guys in the second round that would have been better selections by totals. Kyrie Irving, if you wanted to go that direction. By the time it got to DeAndre Ayton, I think Kyrie might have even been gone in this league. The other guys that finished ahead of him were gone already. Jimmy Butler was gone. Uh, Bam was gone. Beal was gone. Embiid was gone. Tatum was gone, obviously. Kawhi was gone, of course. So uh, that juncture for DeAndre Ayton was around pick 20, 22, somewhere in that three or four pick window. The other move there would have been to go and reach for Rudy Gobert or Nikola Vucevic, which turns out it would have been a good idea. But, I don't know. You you game plan for upside. You figured that Aiden would have been the more durable of those guys. He was, but it didn't matter because by on a per-game basis, those other two dudes blew him out of the water. And that's where we're going to put in pin in things for today. Thursday, we'll come back with the third round. Maybe we'll go as far as the fourth. We'll work our way through. As we find things to talk about, we're going to talk about them. That's just the kind of the way we do things here in the off-season editions of Fantasy NBA Today. Hit me up on Twitter if you got any questions, at Dan Bespris. We can talk some more Top Shot if you want. I just keep piling up these $2 cheapo 
<laughs> moments. If you want to unload anything for two bucks, I'll take it off your hands. Um, Hoopball is hoopdashball.com. Go check out Hoopball tweets. You can see all the amazing stuff that all of our guys are doing, specifically the uh, Hoopball gaming crew that's putting out a bunch of free stuff these days, which is pretty cool, at Hoopball Gaming on Twitter. And that's the end of that. Go get it done, guys. Have a wonderful Wednesday, whatever the hell day it is. Back with you for off-season podcast number 19, Thursday This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.